Welcome to the America's 360 podcast. Get the inside scoop and the outside perspective on the latest developments from Canada, Latin America, and everywhere in between. America's 360 is a production of the Woodrow Wilson International Center for Scholars. This is America's 360, and I'm your host, John Molesky. This program is brought to you by the world's number one think tank for regional studies. And America's 360 is a collaboration among the Wilson Center's Argentina Project, Brazil Institute, Canada Institute, Latin American Program, and Mexico Institute. Well, the COVID-19 pandemic has created the largest disruption to education systems probably in global history, affecting nearly 1.6 billion learners across all continents. According to a UN report, closing schools has had an impact on 94% of the world's student population and up to 99% when you isolate low and lower middle income countries. And now it's back to school season, raising countless questions about how and if schools can safely reopen. To provide an overview of the situation, we're going to hand things off to Argentina Project Director Benjamin Gadan. He's standing by with this episode's special guest. Take it away, Benjamin. Many thanks, John. Gabriel Sanchezini, welcome to America's 360. Thanks for joining us. Thank you, Ben. How are you? I'm wonderful. Gabriel, you currently work for the city of Buenos Aires, Argentina, and from 2017 to 2019, you were the Minister of Education for Buenos Aires province. You supervised policy for 4.7 million students in more than 18,000 schools. And in that job, you focused a lot on improving access to technology in the classroom, um, including laptops and tablets through a program called Aprender Conectados to Learn Connected. The pandemic has drawn attention to unequal access to technology as students attempt to study remotely. As you know, Bolivia has closed schools for the rest of the school year. In Chile, only rural schools are permitting in-person learning. One of the reasons we brought you on today was to see if the experience you had as minister in Buenos Aires province has taught you anything about educational inequality, not only in Argentina, but throughout Latin America and the hemisphere. Thank you, Ben. Thank you for that uh, introduction. I think that, as, as John was saying at the beginning, the, the, the pandemic and the lockdowns are really accelerating change. And I would say, I might say reforms as well at the education systems in Latin America, certainly in, in Argentina. And let me start with four changes briefly that I see that are happening in this, in this acceleration of, of reforms of, of different uh, circumstances and contexts. The first one is technology. Technology has been around education for many, many years now, but I think that clearly now technology is here uh, to stay. Everybody's talking about um, combined, you know, presential, and uh, not blended learning, presential and, and digital. And you see it more and more at the high school level, at the university level. Universities in Latin America were still not digital. Almost around 100 universities in, in Argentina, they didn't have undergrad digital programs. Now all of them are working with Zoom, or some other platform. So I think technology clearly is here to, to stay, and also because teachers became much more familiarized with the using of technology. For, because of this imposition of home, homeschooling, because of the pandemic, every single teacher is still teleworking, no? It's working at home. So that, I think, is helping as well to accelerate the incorporation of, of digital learning in, in schools at in all, in all levels, but especially at the, at the high school uh, level. The other, the other consideration about technology is how all these years, 
we saw platforms, educational platforms growing and trying to, to get involved in the education system. And at the end of the day, we're all using Zoom. We're using Google Classroom. It looks like all these specialized startups and investors that were trying to, to push education technology, I, I, didn't, I, don't, I don't know if they fail or not, but they clearly had to question themselves what happened and now every school is using Zoom or using general platforms that are much easier to use that sometimes specialize a platform. The second point related to, to inequality. I think that is that we, we see, we, we more evidently see inequality in our system. We always knew, you, you look at any indicator in Latin America and you see there's a, a group of students that are learning not as fast as, as other groups or are not learning that much. But now it's much more evident because not so much about learning, it's about connection, it's about the housing conditions of, the, of where the, the students are being educated. It's about the, the parents' education as well. If you have a mother or a father with not elementary school completely, it's much more harder to learn if you, are a, if you are at home. So I think inequality is much more evident, but that might be something positive because now policymakers in Latin America, in Argentina, even principals are realizing that inequality is there, inequality is at school. So this might generate or trigger much more investment and focus from government and civil society on, on, on inequality. And let me talk about two more changes that I see, Ben, very briefly. The third one is about parents' involvement. I, I think that parents are being educated about their children's education. You see parents much more involved in education because they are, of course, with their the, the children at home. And I think that parents are becoming a different kind of uh, engages with education and they're probably becoming much more demanding or better, better companions to teachers when, when schools come to, to present. And the fourth one is about socio-emotional skills. At the policy level, we all talk about 21st century skills, critical thinking, curiosity, um, team working. I think that though, all of those are much more clear now at, at, the, at, the, at the school level. Who will question that the ability to adapt to change is important to teach at the school? Or of course, critical thinking or curiosity so or lifelong learning. So I think that this is also generating a change in the, the, the awareness that we are getting about the importance of socio-emotional skills. Gabriel, it's one thing for there to be new awareness of educational inequality and long-term thinking about how to address it. But we're in an educational crisis today with students unable to access in-person learning and many of them unable to participate remotely. What examples have you seen that are at all promising in the region at the moment? I mean, from what I see, Argentina, Brazil, Costa Rica, you know, are, are putting content on television, hoping people will be able to access it. In Colombia, there's a program, Aprender Digital, that makes available digital uh, learning tools, but that's very different than even remote live education with a teacher. Um, have you seen working models that are distributing hardware to students that are finding ways to really provide something that resembles the in-classroom experience? And that's, a, that's a great uh, question. You need to do all at the same time, television, radio. Here in the, the city of Buenos Aires, we provide already more than 12,000 devices, laptops, 12,000, especially to the, to the most vulnerable families. We, we, we came together with the, 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 the students that were not connected and we delivered devices to them, internet connection to them, printed materials. We, we provide food every two weeks in schools. So together with, with the, the food that we provide, we provide printed materials, especially to those parents, to those families that we know have not been connected in the last, in the last month. So the approach is, I think, doing everything at the, at the same time and also taking that 
uh, uh, reality of this of this opportunity to provide internet to all, all these families. But what we owe Latin America society as countries is we need to provide internet to, to, to everyone. This is like running water or like electricity. So I think that now finally we understand that internet provision, especially to most poor students, is, is key to promote their development. We have just a minute left, Gabriel. I want to know what the long-term impacts will be from this experience, however long it lasts. I mean, on the one hand, you've referenced the realizations about inequality that need to be addressed, the adoption of educational technology, so-called ed tech, that could be useful going forward. On the other hand, is this a lost year that will put Latin America even further behind? We all know the data from these closely watched PISA exams that show Argentina and the rest of the region often lagging in math, science, reading, compared to OECD averages, you know, is the legacy from this experience going to be that Latin America falls further behind in its educational performance? You know, certainly will be challenges related to, to learning, especially with the most multi-level students that we were uh, talked recently in many, in many governments that is being addressed as we, as we discussed. We also need to, to study and analyze that we don't have the results yet, but we are doing now with INECO, a neuroscience institute at the city of Buenos Aires, the psychological effects. No, the, the depression, trauma, many effects that are impacting children, are impacting adults, not just on education, but in terms of being in a, in a lockdown for so many months, looking at your parents, talking about you know, war and depression and pandemic, many words that are new for uh, the newer generations in, in Latin America. So that, I think, will have an effect as well, not just from an education point of view, but from a psychological and sociological point of view. Those effects are still um, yet to, to see. Or, but I think it's important that we at the education system start to analyze them and study them and, and, and see how students are reacting to that and how we help as well teachers. Because this is not only uh, for, uh, for the impact on students, but also on teachers that have been, been heroes of this pandemic as well, trying to really engage with students in these very complicated uh, situations and challenges. Gabriel Sanchez-Zini, thank you so much for joining us. We appreciate your insights about the impacts of the pandemic on education in Latin America and what we'll see in the future as Latin America grapples with educational inequality and the need to adopt these educational technologies. Thank you so much, Gabriel. Great thank to you, man. You. Thank you so much. Thank you for the opportunity. Thank you, Benjamin. Thank you, Gabriel. We'll be right back with our roundtable and more on education and the return to school in the shadow of the pandemic. You're listening to America's 360. Welcome back to America's 360. This is our roundtable segment. You'll be hearing from our experts on the return to school in the era of pandemic. You have already heard from Argentina Project Director Benjamin Gadan. Benjamin, welcome back. Thanks, John. Also with us, Brazil Institute Director Ricardo Zuniga. Ricardo? Hi, John. Canada Institute Director Christopher Sands. Hi, John. Latin American Program Director Cindy Arnson. Hey, John. And last but not least, Duncan Wood, director of the Center's Mexico Institute. Hi, Duncan. Hello, my old friend. So as we heard in our spotlight interview, not only COVID-19 disrupting education systems all over the Americas, but also exacerbating existing problems. One of the pre-existing disparities in the world of online learning has been the so-called digital divide, which an umbrella that talks about a lot of things, whether it's just resources in general that are lacking or specifically equipment, or specifically access to broadband. It really is an uphill climb for a lot of communities and a lot of nations. 
So let's begin our discussion there since that seems to loom large. Cindy, give us your thoughts on, on some of the various countries and what the challenges that they face in this regard. Yeah, thanks, John. I think that was one of the most impressive things about what Gabriel um, just told us. There are, you know, huge inequalities in access to internet, not only between and among countries in Latin America and the Caribbean, but also within countries. I mean, you have uh, places like Argentina, Chile, Uruguay um, that have, you know, penetration of internet somewhere 85 to 90% um, down to small Central American countries like Honduras and, and Nicaragua um, that have maybe in the low 40s. And I think overall, Latin America's um, access to internet digital penetration is really low, even for the developing world. And this creates, I think, a huge gap. And then there are also within countries, um, places in large cities, uh, where people have access to internet, have smartphones, even if they don't have a computer at home or a laptop. And in rural areas, you know, it's a lot different. And even within cities, the difference between, say, um, a business district and favelas or slums, you know, in, in a large capital city um, is also tremendous. And at a time when inequalities in general are becoming magnified throughout the region, inequalities in access to healthcare, public versus private, um, the number of informal workers who are falling back even more than people um, that, uh, that might have some form of social protection. Um, this is yet another uh, aspect of the inequality that is really, um, really troubling um, in this uh, time of the pandemic. Cindy, you're completely right, and I think that it's it's another symptom of this inequality that is growing across various sectors and various with various manifestations. But I think, uh, particularly with regard to what Gabrielle's comments, I think the concept of the internet and access to information as a utility is a is an absolutely uh, key concept here. This is no longer something that is um, really debatable. Uh, clearly, access to information is completely linked to not only education, but almost every other aspect of living. And when you run into a crisis like this one, it's a perfect example of why that's the case. Uh, it, it ties into, into other areas where there's disparity. For example, uh, when we talk about remote areas, there's often uh, the lack of access to internet is often connected to the lack of access to energy or to the lack of access to other um, elements of uh, public services that are available in urban areas and, and areas closer to big cities. So it is tied to this bigger set of, of issues. I, there, there have been companies that have been involved in distributed energy uh, and have used the uh, access to internet by remote population as a hook to get government approval uh, across the region for uh, why that's both necessary and desirable, um, even though it's a new concept in, in some cases. Uh, in the case of Brazil, uh, it's always been a hydroelectric energy, but that's run its course to some extent. So now these issues of distributed energy are very connected to these issues of, of addressing vast populations in vast parts of the country that don't have uh, uh, services that are available. Chris Sands, you're up. I, yeah, it, it's interesting to hear uh, and contrast what's happening in other parts of the, of the Americas with what's happening in Canada. And I think there's an element that Latin America could benefit from that Canada certainly has, and that is greater social cohesion. We have not seen the partisan uh, polarization on the issue of COVID response that we've seen, for example, in the United States. So as a result, 
most provinces are working constructively to get kids back to school, whether it's to a, a private school, usually a, a religious affiliated school or to the public schools. They've made some adjustments. Um, obviously, they want kids from the fourth grade up to the 12th grade to wear masks. And they've broken high school students who are a bit more vulnerable and, and a bit more social, to be honest, uh, into cohorts so that their large class sizes are now chopped into little groups so that we can, they can limit some of the interactive uh, you know, learning and keep uh, testing under control and try to monitor the student's health. And most universities are going to online education. When you put all that together, it, it, what you've seen is federal and provincial officials just working together in a very constructive way. Now, going to something that, that Gabrielle talked to us about, Canada doesn't have quite as severe a digital divide. But uh, I'd say before technology, the advantage Canada's had is a better cooperation on all sides and less partisan polarization. It may not solve the problem, but it makes solving the problem a lot easier. Chris, is that exportable? I mean, you, when you talk about it as a Canadian advantage, is it also a uniquely Canadian advantage? Because it certainly doesn't apply to just about any country south of Canada. But it, it, certainly, you think about the United States, and we, we'd love to import some of that Canadian uh, friendliness. Um, I think it's partly also that within the Canadian system, the, the federal government's run by the liberals. Almost all the provinces are run by other parties. And there is a, on education, uh, fiscal federalism dynamic where the federal government provides the funding and the provinces provide the delivery, whether it's healthcare or education or whatnot. And I think that's tended to make people cooperate a little bit more. At the end of the day, though, I think it also meets with what the public, the average Canadian expects, which is that in a crisis, you know, put the partisanship to one side and let's all focus on working together. And whether that's exportable, it's certainly emulatable. And I think you know, we should expect that from politicians across the region, at least if, if we can. I have to say that, uh, you know, we've all spent a lot of time in the region and, uh, you know, we've seen how reality really doesn't match up to uh, what politicians tell us. Um, for years, Mexican politicians have been talking about providing, you know, universal access to, uh, to the Internet. They've been talking about providing, you know, computers to every student. Um, and the fact is, as you travel throughout Mexico, you realize that you know, although the national, I'm sorry, one of the major telecommunications companies says that all of Mexican territory you know, is their territory, it's very often that you don't get a signal. And as we have all learned during this pandemic, having access to Internet is not the same as having reliable access to Internet. I mean, how many of us have had to upgrade our service, spending a small fortune on a monthly basis by Latin American standards on just having access so that we can do this kind of Zoom interaction. So what's been intriguing about the Mexican case uh, recently is that Mexico has decided to basically forego internet teaching, and they have opted for a television-based platform, um, something they've been using for a number of years anyway, um, and uh, you know through sort of open university courses and something called the Telesecundaria, where they've been trying to uh, provide open access to secondary and some, uh, education. Um, there are a number of problems with this, though. Um, although you know, most of the population has access to television, um, the timing of the classes is not always optimal. There have been examples of classes being put, uh, scheduled for late at night, and kids you know, are obviously not going to be uh, learning at their, their optimal rate at those times. Other uh, questions that are out there are, well, look at the telesecondary experience to date, and those have been the poorest performing students 
in Mexico. And part of the problem, of course, is that when you're learning through television, it tends to be entirely passive. The advantage of having an internet connection is that at least there is some kind of interaction if it's handled right. And unfortunately, I, I, I mean, from what I see and talking to colleagues and, uh, and friends in Mexico, is that those, once again, who can afford private education are getting a huge leg up over those who depend upon the public system. What does every story end up as a story of the haves and the have-nots? Benjamin, uh, your thoughts on this? You, you did bring up the question during your interview with Gabrielle about everything old is new again. We're talking about old technologies, TV, what used to seem like very exotic distance learning now seems clunky. Indeed. I mean, TV, radio, I mean, it's all a profound indictment of the public education systems in a region that long has acknowledged the need for better access to technology. It shouldn't have required a pandemic where remote education is the only option for these investments to have been made. And in countries that made the investments earlier, like Uruguay, today every student in the Uruguay public education system has access to technology and a uh, an educational device of some sort that the government is investing in. So, you know, those that invested, it's paying off now in a really important way. Those that did not are suffering from, you know, their lack of foresight, or in many cases, they recognize the problem. They just never put in the resources needed. What do we know about Nicaragua, the, almost the Sweden-like country in the Americas that never closed the schools in the first place? Uh, Nicaragua is one of those cases um, in the region. It's been a real outlier in terms of the, the government's utter denial um, that there's a need for social distancing or um, that the pandemic is uh, really having an effect. And I think that it was an extreme example of the fear on the part of Daniel Ortega that closing down the, the country because of the pandemic would lead to unacceptable economic costs. And, and as a result, the, the rate of contagion is very high. The, the government is um, not being forthcoming about the statistics about what's going on. And Nicaragua also has one of the lowest rates of, of internet penetration in, in the entire hemisphere. So the fact that schools have not been closed is just a, another manifestation of that of that denial. And if I could, um, perhaps just on a, on a brighter note, um, I think that sometimes there is a great deal of innovation that is prompted by, by a crisis of this nature. Uh, the Dominican Republic is putting in, you know, a thousand free high, uh, Wi-Fi hotspots. Um, there's a renewed push to get these educational technology platforms, um, um, you know, up and running. The limitations and the inequalities, you know, are what they are. But I think that, uh, that but the region is really stretching to find ways to meet this um, this challenge. And there may be some innovations that will be more permanent and lasting. Should we expect more from the private sector? Look, I mean, I think the private sector, to the extent that they are impacted by this, are uh, you know, they consider themselves both. Um, uh, victims to some extent of the circumstances, and in many cases they've been asked to be involved in specifically in the pandemic response. Um, but where it comes to the issue of education, I think that that's also an area where there's potentially some innovation. Um, I think that I don't know how many of you were affected by the Zoom outage this morning. Um, that that hit so many. I have a college student at home who was who was impacted. That's happening across the region, you're seeing industries that are being uh, stretched because they're, they're simply not prepared for and used to this kind of, uh, of uh, situation. 
and I do think that there is certainly space uh, for the private sector. In fact, that it's a, almost a requirement in many uh, areas that the private sector is going to have to be in the zone of, of innovation and perhaps providing services um, that they haven't uh, been in the past. But you know, I think it, it's also important here. We, we talked some about the haves and have-nots. Um, we have the big issue of haves and have-nots, which is that countries in the Americas are simply going to be behind the countries that have recovered more quickly. Uh, and except with in areas where uh, countries in Latin America are sources uh, for materials where there's demand in China, for example, uh, there, there you might see some uh, advantage. But on the whole, the countries that are responding least effectively to COVID are the countries that are going to be most negatively impacted and left further behind as a international recovery comes forward. But within countries, there's also the issue of which populations are being severely impacted. And uh, as was noted uh, at, at another point, the, the women and young uh, girls in particular are, are disproportionately impacted because they're expected to carry out so many of the duties at home. And that's true across the region. And uh, what you're seeing is uh, as many as, I think, 17 percent of, of uh, young women across the region being uh, unable to attend school uh, beyond the uh, primary, uh, beyond the primary level. And uh, in this case, given the nature of the crisis, it's often young women and girls who are asked to carry that burden at home while uh, boys maybe are able to continue their education. Ricardo, thank you for bringing that up. Speaking of those pre-existing conditions, gender inequality within education is something that existed before the pandemic and certainly can't be helped as a result of it. And I, I regret to inform you we're out of time. This was a terrific discussion. Thank you. I think I learned a lot and I hope our listeners did as well. And we'll look forward to hearing from all of you next time. We'd also like to hear from you, our listeners. Tell us what you'd like us to cover in future episodes of America's 360 or anything else that's on your mind about the program. You can reach us via email at americas360 at wilsoncenter.org. Until then, for all of us at the Center at America's 360, I'm John Molesky. Thanks for joining us. You have been listening to America's 360, a podcast about the innumerable ties among the nations of the Western Hemisphere. America's 360 is produced and edited by Oscar Cruz, Angela Robertson, and Mariana Sanchez Ramirez. You can subscribe wherever you listen to your favorite podcasts. To learn more about our programs, please visit wilsoncenter.org. And please join us again next time for another episode of America's 360.